I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Kate. This is Mike. This week, we're doing something we've never done before, which is that we are rerunning an episode. And we are rerunning this episode because currently in the United States, the state of oppression of black people is being uncovered in a massive way. So one of my favorite writers and teachers, Adrian Marie Brown, the author of Emergent Strategy, said that things are not getting worse. Things are getting uncovered, which P.S. she said that back in 2016. Mm -hmm. It's still true. And we wanted to feature this conversation about unpacking white feminism and anti-racism because honestly, there's nothing else that I could possibly imagine thinking about or talking about right now. So Rachel Cargill is an activist, a public academic, a writer, and a lecturer. Her activism and academic work are rooted in providing intellectual discourse, tools, and resources that explore the intersection of race and womanhood. Her social media platforms boast a community of over a million, where Rachel guides conversations, encourages critical thinking, and nurtures meaningful engagement with people all over the world. Her work has been featured on The New Yorker, The Washington Post, Harper's Bazaar, on the TEDx stage, and also on the Emmy-nominated show, Red Table Talk. Which is a phenomenal show. You can, if you've not seen it, it's on Facebook with Jada Pinkett Smith, Jada's mom, and Jada's daughter, Willow, who I actually saw in Venice, California, when I was out there last time eating a couple tables away from me. That was pretty cool. So let's talk about like this episode was recorded two years ago and almost to the day. Almost, it was like May 29th, 2018 is when, when it we went live, it. May 29th, May 30th or so for two years ago. So, there is some chit chat about traveling the world. We've talked about our travel experience. Rachel was telling us about her travel experience in the beginning. And I know you wanted to address some yeah, of Yeah, there our... are some details in her life and our life that are no longer accurate because two years have passed. And I also want to say in re-listening to the episode, there are some ways that I asked questions and some things that I said, including the amount I talked that are cringeworthy. And the reason I draw attention to that and the reason we didn't edit it out is because perfectionism is one of the bastions of white supremacy and it causes us to silence ourselves which is an act of violence so in the words of erica hines i am showing up and being humble and ready to fumble and there were certainly some fumbles in this episode yeah and for myself as well listening to this episode again just there are ways i asked questions that i would not ask those ways now just from learning that i've gone through in the past two years this is so, an evolution, folks. This is not a one and done. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and when you're done listening to this podcast, we just watched Rachel Cargill's public address on revolution called Revolution Now, which took place on May 30th, which was a couple days ago. And it was her, I'll just, it's on YouTube. So you can go to YouTube. I'm sure she might've posted it other places, but this is where we watched it. It has over a hundred thousand views just on YouTube now. And if you follow her on Instagram, I'm sure you can find the links for that there as well. And it, this is her first public address 
Rachel will be in community and conversation around the realities of revolutionary moment we are in today using her three-pronged approach, knowledge, empathy, and action. Rachel will address the recent police brutality, racist incidences in Minnesota and all across America, analyzing the modern manifestation of America's racist history and making a call to action for all those who are ready to say no more. This address will serve as a launching point for more critical language and more critical lens, and most importantly, more critical action to lead us towards the revolution, which is now. So with that, know that the themes of the episode continue to be relevant and important. Two years later, there are a lot of practical action steps you can take, a lot of unpacking in this episode, and listen in, and let's get to work. All right. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Welcome. We're so happy to be having this much needed conversation. So I want to start out by asking you, I'm curious about a lot of things, but just on like a basic kind of, you know, ground foundation level, tell me about studying at Columbia and how that came about because it's (laughs) not, it's not, I don't know. I was just so struck by how much you're doing. And then also studying at Columbia, you know, with the podcast and then with um, all of your various projects. And yeah, so I'm curious about that. And then I have some time management questions. (laughs) We are going to talk about unpacking white feminism, but before we get there, I have like some I love to ask people about their the minutia of their lives mm-hmm. because I'm so fascinated by how people make it work. So can we talk about that? Well, one thing is that I often get asked the question, how do you do so many things? And my answer is always, I'm assuming that the feeling that people get when they're doing too much is the feeling that I get when I'm doing too little. I get anxious. I don't feel together. Like, it's just like, okay, what else needs to be done and how can I hop on it? I think it's really my, what's the word? It's just like my foundation place, my equal place. I feel good when I just am doing a certain number of irrational things and I'm, and I'm one to be like, do you have another project for me? Yes, let's do that. (laughs) And so (laughs) Columbia was such a surprise to me. It was the only school I applied to. It wasn't like I was like, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to do this and this and that. It was just, Oh, I'm tired of my mom telling me I should go back to school. Let me put in an application to appease her for a little bit. And I literally my letter that I wrote, my like personal statement, I did that on the bus from New York to DC to visit my friend. I had maybe one or two people edit it. It was nothing that I actually thought was going to happen. And it wasn't, I don't know, it just happened. So here I am, I got accepted to Columbia and I was the most nervous I'd ever been in my entire life, but I just finished my first semester. So I should, so I'm only one semester in and yeah, it's been amazing and fulfilling and hard, very, very hard. But I finished the semester with a 3.5. And so I'm very excited for how I've been able to work it in. But to answer specifically your question, a lot of, it's really funny. I took a writing course and every single paper that we were assigned, I did it on the intersection of being black and a woman or something of feminism or something that had to do with the history of just womanhood. So I really intersect a lot of what I do outside of school with what I do with school. Yeah. I mean, it seems like that because you're studying women's studies and anthropology, uh-huh. 
obviously there's so many opportunities to go- dive deeper into your activism work. So that's kind of like a twofer, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah a very, it truly, truly very is. Efficient. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure my teachers are so tired of hearing me talk about these specific. They're like, Rachel, why don't you write about art? I'm like, no, no, no. There's like this feminist issue that we really can deep dive into this 15 page paper you just assigned me. So I think my management of everything has been making it all mesh together in some way, making it valuable on both ends. Yeah, it's the integration approach mm-hmm. as opposed to the compartmentalization approach. And I cannot compartmentalize if someone paid me money to do that. So, <laughs> yeah, I am also very grateful that I live a life that does not have to be compartmentalized. So, mm-hmm. well done. Thank and you. then, can you tell us the story also about traveling the world by yourself? Yeah, I, I can tell you that story. We have a lot of kind of, <laughs> you know, we have a lot of folks who listen who are really into this concept of freedom and mm-hmm. expansion and going new places. So mm-hmm. I just would love to hear how you did that and what made you decide and how you navigated it. Yeah, I also am part of that audience who um, loves the idea of freedom and travel. And actually, it started out out of a bad situation. I got fired from a nannying position. And um, she basically said, well, Rachel, are you going to work harder or are you going to go? And I was like, mm, I'll go since clearly you're not like appreciating me as a person. <laughs> so I remember it was New Year's and I was with my best friends in Washington, D.C. And I go, you guys, I think I'm just going to go. I think I'm just going to like travel. And of course, they're like, yeah, do it, Rachel. Let's see what happens. It was no, of no risk to them. So <laughs> they were encouraging me. And so I got down to it. And I looked into my resources. I called my friends in different countries and said, Hey, can I stay with you for a week? I'm thinking about traveling. Yeah. So I bought my next check. I bought a one-way ticket and the biggest parts, and I'll give kind of the biggest parts that would be helpful to people who are listening is that one, before I left, I reached out to my network and I asked if anyone needed a social media manager or a writer for their blogs. And I had four incredible entrepreneurial women reach out to me and say, yes, I could use your services. So I had clients who I was working for and I strategically scheduled them to pay me one week of the month. So I was always having income coming in. So I didn't have like a huge amount of savings. I hadn't been planning this trip. So I literally was kind of on the fly. And I was able to create this flow of income using the skills that I had that I wasn't a professional at, but I was able to like, I made up this like contract in Microsoft Word and that, and I copied a template online. So I really just like made everything up. I mean, my skills are real, but I made up all of this like businessy stuff up on my own. And yeah, so that's how I paid for most things. And then there's a really great website called workaway.info. And it connects you with hostels, farms, people who own big homes who need support or help in some way. I chose hostels everywhere I went. And what they did, they allowed you to stay there and work for free rooming. So I would work the front desk for like three hours a day and then I would sleep for free and then I would spend the rest of the day exploring or writing or working or doing whatever I wanted to. So yeah, that worked everywhere I went. The other question people always ask me is how I got the pictures that I took since I was traveling solo. And I literally would walk up to people and say, hi, I have a vision and I need you to be a part of it right now. 
So you would get the vision of what you wanted, where yes. you were going to be and how I was going to stand, what, what I wanted the frame to look like. And then people would surprisingly participate and be like, oh yeah, we can make this happen. And I'd be like, great. So <laughs> I got um, a lot of really great pictures that way. So yes, I was alone. It was so wonderful. All I packed was a backpack and a carry-on. So I didn't have to pay any extra fees on my flights. I met tons of incredible lifelong friends from the hostels that I stayed at, the other travelers who I got to meet and talk to. And I got homesick about five months in. And so I just came home and I was so happy to be back in New York City. But yeah, it was an I should go back. I had found out that I had gotten into Columbia by that time. So I deferred Columbia for a year. And I said, you know what, I'm probably, because I know I wanted to go through my PhD. And I said, you know what, I probably won't be leaving the city anytime soon. So I was like, I'm going to try it. And that was my first time traveling internationally. So if anyone's scared or is saying, you know, lack of experience is an excuse, it's really not. And it's so worth exploring. Because when you explore the world, you explore yourself and that opportunity, nothing compares to it. Like how many countries did you go to? I went to Hawaii, Puerto Rico. I stayed for a month in the deserts in Phoenix. Then I went to Japan and I was in Tokyo and Osaka. And then I went down to these islands called the Goto Islands, which is about a seven hour ferry ride from Nagasaki, which was amazing. And I stayed there for a few weeks. And then I went to Bangkok and Phuket. And then I was ready to come home. <laughs> but each place I stayed a few, at least a few weeks, if not entire month in each location. That's yeah. amazing. I love that. That's awesome. I know. What a great adventure. And it so smart so to delay the start of school if you know that like once you're starting, you're going deep. I'm in no rush. Everyone keeps asking me when I'm going to graduate. When I graduate, <laughs> I'm... I will let, I will send out the invitations when the time comes. Are you I, working on your PhD right now? No, I'm just an undergrad right now. I'm okay. finishing my undergrad. Yeah. I left undergrad my sophomore year when I was just out of high school. So since then, my mother has been like, when are you going to go back to school? And I'm like, mom, like chill. And then I had just gotten so annoyed. I was like, you know what? I'll just apply to Columbia. We'll see how this goes. And this is how it went. And I'm now in their anthropology program. Yeah. And then, do you care if I ask how old you are? I'm 29. Okay. I think, like, like I'm 35. I, like, going back to school at 29 would have been a smart idea. I, it feels really good. It's so different from the first time yeah. that I went. I'm so much more invested. I'm having so much more fun learning. I'm not as worried about boys. And I think <laughs> that I'm just able to connect. It's so cool to connect with your professors adult as adults than as like this weird authority. I mean, me and my professors go out for coffee. They're able to give me just more academic advice than just, you know, the grade that they put on my paper. So it's been, an, I wish everyone could experience it. This specific, well, not everyone, it's not for everyone, but this has been exactly what I needed. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really awesome. Yeah. I, you know, I think about when I was in school and I just missed, you know, cause I did the thing, like I graduated mm -hmm. from high school and I went right to college and I just feel like I was like, missed some stuff. I, you know, I trust that it was perfect for me at the yeah. time, but I just, kudos to you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So yeah. back to the setting up the perfect photograph, because this is the perfect mm -hmm. segue. So, so <laughs> the photograph of you from the women's March that went uh -huh. viral was that the same vision? And did you recruit some passerbys to, I know you took a bus with 40 women, yes. so you probably didn't need, like <laughs> random passerbys to, at the Women's March, but tell us the story of the photograph and then what changed 
like how that spurred you into your current work? Yeah. So that photograph was definitely staged. I had thought about, I think I had thought about it the night before we went or maybe before my friend Dana, who is the other woman in the photo with me. Um, she and I had been having really intense activist conversations and just talking about race and kind of our, the intersection of the things that we were doing. And when we had planned to go to the women's March, I remembered a picture of Gloria Steinem and Dorothy Pittman and that photo, which we really, which we were channeling in that, in that photo. And I told Dana, I was like, we have to make this photo happen. And Dana is a blogger and she has a ton of gorgeous pictures. So I knew she'd be on board. And we had a photographer there with us. Well, we had a friend there who is also a photographer. We didn't hire one to come, but she brought her camera and I had told her, we had taken that photo in a few different places throughout the March, but we just, for what, how it happened, I don't know, but we got in front of the Capitol with no one behind us. Yeah, that was going to be my question. Like, <laughs> people. I have no idea. They knew this was needed and everyone just part for this photo of Dana and I. But yeah, I, we had planned it. We, we had kind of studied the picture and saw where we needed to stand, you know, what fist we needed to hold up. And we were really excited about how it could look. And like I said, we took it in a few different places. But once we got that shot, you know, when you take a perfect selfie and you're like, this is it. This is the one that I've been trying to get this whole time. So that's how we felt. And the woman who, her name's Kennedy, who photographed it for us, she took it back and she made, um, she edited it for us. And then once we put it on our social media, Dana had a, has a huge following. She's a body positive activist. And once she put it on there, I didn't have much of a following at the time, but it also got put into Pantsuit Nation on Facebook. And then that's when the conversations around it really got started. It was really great. Yeah. yeah. And your post that you wrote for the Huffington Post about it and about really what you realized at the Women's March was incredibly powerful. And I've been, as I emailed you, I've been diving into your work over the last couple of days deeper than following you on Instagram, which is actually a pretty deep experience. But you know, when you actually read the articles, it's, it's much more profound. And I just really want to thank you for what you're doing. Eye-opening for, I imagine other people, but certainly for myself to realize to realize ever since Trump got elected, I, you know, like am the classic, the classic example. I just wasn't paying attention. And then Trump got elected and I was like, what the fuck? And I got, you know, I opened my eyes and, and so it took me, you know, I'm late to the game. And so I just want to say on behalf of women like me, first of all, I'm so sorry that we're so late And second of all, thanks for talking to us. It really means a lot. And I know that that's not why you do it, you know, but but I just, I really do want to say that. And I found your piece, Dear White Women, so helpful in the, particularly the pieces. So just for those listening, this is a social syllabus that Rachel wrote and you can find it on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Rachel Cargill. Yeah. And of course that link will be in the show notes, but the parts, first of all, so educational, but second of all, the pieces at the bottom, the one that stuck to me the most was the item. I think it was number four. Like if you are spending all of your time trying to justify why you are not racist, you will miss where you are racist. So why not just assume that you are, and then you can actually get the work done. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was so helpful because it's so true. 
Like we spend all this time being like, well, that's not me, but of course it is. <laughs> it couldn't not be. Mm-hmm. And so then it's like the opening to say, well, this is happening. And then where can I go from here? So I would just love to open the floor to you to talk about that particular piece and what's important for you about that for, for white women to know. I get so many messages from women saying exactly what you just expressed to me in terms of the Trump election and how after that happened, they got all, you know, aware and in a tizzy, like, oh my gosh, there's things happening that I didn't know. And now it's happening to me and now I care. And to women of color, it was like a I don't know, kind of like a punch in the gut for them to tell us like, oh, now you care all of a sudden. And so I'm getting so many messages from specifically white women, which is most of my audience on my platform, all over the spectrum from 16-year-old girls who are telling me that they're so interested to learn it because they're not getting it at home to 65-year-old women in Texas who are calling, not calling me, but they're messaging me, (laughs) calling my phone. Amazing. (laughs) How they get your number? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who are messaging me to tell me I got the sweetest message from a woman who said, I promise to work harder for the years to come, which is basically the rest of my life because I don't have much time left, but I promise to work hard for whatever I've got left. And it was just so interesting that she rec- she's like, I lived my whole life with no concept of what was happening to people outside of what was happening to me, even though we're all part of this country and we're all interwoven. And so my piece, Dear White Women, which was a social syllabus, I like to create these social syllabi because I'm so tired of people on social media media, having these intense conversations about things they haven't educated themselves about yet. So I created social syllabi to allow people. Can you define what is a social syllabi? I don't, well, I I made it up, I think, but basically a social syllabi is just a interactive document for people to become more knowledgeable about a specific topic. The whole thing isn't written by me. I create the headers and I leave, I do an introduction and I do an introduction to each section, but it's really just me going out and doing the research to pull together articles, videos, academic journals, things that all speak to a topic so that people can take time to scroll through, gain some information and then go out and have meaningful conversations. So this specific social syllabi was written, it specifically happened to, I felt a need to write it after the story that happened just a few weeks ago where in Waffle House, a black woman was assaulted by police officers. And I didn't see a lot of my white community, feminist community, writing about it or saying anything. And I was really hurt because I'm like, a woman was just thrown to the ground by two huge men. Her breasts were exposed. She was completely violated. She had done nothing. There's video evidence that she had done nothing to deserve this. And there's no word from the feminist community who should be outraged by it. I'm not even going to bring up race, like just the feminist community who should be outraged this happened to a woman. So then I can only conclude that it is about race because there's no, like there's literally nothing about this situation that's different than any other outrage that would come from the feminist community. So basically dear white women that specific document was dear white women i'm tired of you picking and choosing what you care about so i'm going to remind you about your relationship with black women and how you're actually part of the problem and so i'm demanding you be part of the solution i started to dig in and do a lot of research that went through i went all the way back to the foundation of the country <laughs> just reminding white women that they were married 
and mothers to these white men who made decisions to, you know, make this nation built on racism, whether it be towards the native community or the black community who they were bringing in as slaves. And so a lot of the bad things that feminists get so riled up about actually was done within your view and you were able to stop it if you really cared about women. So I bring up really tough points. Like if you really cared about women, and of course, when I say you, I'm talking about your lineage and what, what has been passed down to you. Because as much as I'd love to say that I am who I am without slavery, that's not true. I wouldn't be who I am here at this moment. And white women can't dismiss who they come from and where they come from and what privileges they've gained from the heinous actions done by women who look like them in this country. So like I said, I bring up hard points like your ancestors were watching black women get beat by their husbands on, you know, in the slave fields and in the suffrage movement, the white women told the black women they could march, but they had to be in the back. There were just so many historical parts and pieces that met at that intersection of feminism and race that I had to remind everyone, like you guys don't have a past just because you're all of a sudden passionate, just because you're all of a sudden hurting. We've been hurting and you've been a part of the problem. There's a lot of issue around white feminists in particular, using black women as foot soldiers for their causes. They want us for the numbers, but they don't want to champion our causes. So I, it was really just a chance for me to bring to the forefront a reminder. This is who you've been to us. This is what we've done for you. Recent elections, a lot of the fighting that we've done through civil rights, through the suffrage movement that black women have had to do on our own in our own little pockets because white women wouldn't support us. And I was hoping that white women would read through that and have an eye opening and say, wow, there's something that needs to be fixed before we can move forward. And before we really need to listen, to learn and to do the work in order to make a change that's real and inclusive, because there's just so much to unpack <laughs> before we can really move forward in what, what would benefit the country as a whole. Absolutely. And how did it feel to write that? It felt really powerful. It felt really powerful to write it. I have a quote that I have on my Facebook page that says, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. And it really, I take that to heart in the sense that I always think about who I am and my traits and, you know, how I'm very, I'm very creative. I'm, I want to be free. I'm very outgoing. I can only imagine that I got that from an ancestor who was the same way. And to know that there was a woman like me who was enslaved just blows my mind that there could have been someone with so much heart and passion and possibility that she wasn't able to do these things. And I feel so honored to be able to do it. And I feel so honored to have this space and this platform and this voice and this just this happiness and joy and what I'm able to do. I take that very seriously and I take to heart the possibility to do that. So writing this letter, there's so much behind it. There's so, there's so many people that I'm speaking for. There's so many things that I'm speaking to. It just felt right. It felt like this is what I can do. My writing is something that I take a lot of pride in. And so it's like, these are gifts that were given to me and I'm so thrilled to use them in this specific way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, because even other people who might feel the same way you do, not everyone has the ability to write. 
(laughs) And to communicate, like the gift of being able to communicate is, is really huge. I've learned that. And I never considered myself a writer like yesterday. So it was never, (laughs) it was never something that I would have told, like if I introduced myself, I would never say, hi, my name's Rachel. I'm a writer, but I'm learning from the interaction with this new platform that I have. I'm learning that I am able to communicate things that people are thinking and people are saying, and I'm proud to do that. So for example, for my event, I've called a lot of my black friends and said, what do you want me to say? What have you been wanting to say? And I'm happy to take what I have, which I don't people, I've had people message me like, Rachel, how do you write to speak to a specific audience? I'm like, I literally have no idea how this is happening, but it feels so natural to me. I'm going to keep going. (laughs) But I'm so thrilled and excited about the opportunity that what feels so easy to me, what feels so natural to me is benefiting other people. It's like mind blowing that that is a thing. (laughs) That's how you know you found your sweet spot for sure. I mean, if, yeah, that's beautiful. So tell us a little bit more about this event that you just alluded to, Unpacking White Feminism. I know you do. I I love- Can I ask you a question about what she just talked about first? I get to ask all the questions. (laughs) Well, before we segment into the event, like, is this been something, like, was there a shift that took place for you? Like Kate just mentioned, like, what happened with Trump and the election, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Was there something that happened in your life that was just like, whoa, like this is, we got it all wrong or this is being done incorrectly or is this something you've known for a long time and realized like, okay, now I'm going to start talking about it or have you always been talking about it? Well, this is black people's existence. So no, nothing, nothing at all surprised me. Nothing at all made me think, wow, something's happening in this. Like, no, this is the reality of the Mm -hmm. country. But what I will speak to is that I grew up in, I was often the only black girl in my class, often the only black, I was the only black girl on my soccer team, the only black girl on my Girl Scout troop. And so I grew up in a very white area and um, green Ohio, (laughs) the suburb in Ohio. And I think that that set me up for this, that a lot of my understanding of white women based on my immersion with them and my friend, the friends that I've gained, the comfortability I feel in all white spaces has given me this insight that allows me to I don't want to be, I'm not like the white girl whisperer, but it allows me to like. <laughs> you call yourself the white girl whisperer. <laughs> so like, that's, that's hilarious. That's what I'm going to title this podcast. <laughs> Rachel Cargill, the white girl whisperer. <laughs> and now we have a new PDF document. Because white women can't be the white girl whisperer. Can't, we can't, yes. We can't see ourselves. That's, that's true. But I feel like it, it has allowed me a voice and that puts me at a really good space to have these conversations. That feels very natural to me. I don't feel unnatural talking to white people because it's all of my friends and what I grew up with. But I also, as I became an adult and I was able to, you know, take agency in what I was listening to and learning and feeling about certain things, my blackness became so valuable to me. And I can, you know, I can remember being in elementary school and I asked when we started thinking about boys and there was this guy who I went up to and I said, hi, and this is how it went back. Then you say, I want to date you. And then you say, okay. And then you go about to, I don't know, art class and you sit by each other. But this this specific guy, I went up to him and I said, hi, I like you. I had seen this happen 18 million times on the playground. And he said, oh, I can't, you're black. 
and he was white and I was the only black girl at the school. So I didn't have another black girl to be like, is this how it goes? So I had to begin early kind of compartmentalizing myself into who I was at home with my black family and who I was when I was around my white friends. There's a word for that now called code switching in which you, in which black people or marginalized people have to shift who they are in different spaces in order to be accepted and respected, whether it's they change the, the way they talk, they change the pitch of their voice, they change the tone of their voice in order to be more accepted in white spaces when we don't have to do that at home. So I think I didn't know what was happening as I was growing up, but I was really getting this intense experience of understanding how things work and in white spaces. And it allows me now to speak with authority and to speak with clarity and comfort on this platform that I've had. And also to answer your question, I began getting into this specific work when I realized I was getting so frustrated. I was to the point where I was like talking to my therapist about it, where I was saying like, my audience is all white and I don't know why I'm black and I don't want like, and all these white people really make me angry with the things that they do. And that's all I'm talking about, but my numbers are growing with all these more white people. And I kept getting so frustrated, like, okay, what, why is this the case? And then I just started to get so many messages from women saying, you know, I never considered it until I saw the way you write. I never could listen until you said it the way you said it. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to keep doing my work. And if this is my audience, then this is my audience. A lot of the research that I do, a lot of the intensity that I put into it is for me, as I mentioned in my Dear white women, this is self-care. This is self-preservation for me to do this work, not just for myself, for all of my other, like the black women who I exist with. And then for the legacy of black women who will come after me, like this work has to be done in order for us to survive, quite frankly. And so it kind of picked up, my follower count picked up very quickly. And I was able to, I had just this inspired moment of what kind of what I wanted to write for example, like how to talk about race and bringing up historic points to remind people of what's been happening. And it's been a very fulfilling experience for me to be able to have, to able to do the work for myself and have these conversations with people who have told me that they're learning and growing and having the conversation far past the screen of social media into their homes, their schools, their friend circles. Okay. So awesome. You breathed first. <laughs> I have five more questions at least. <laughs> so I guess my question is, you mentioned a few times where it's like all my followers are white women, mm-hmm. right? And so is that a, like, it almost sounds like it's a problem, right? Is it, because you even said this in your article that you wrote about being on the, um, I finally decided to do a podcast. I'm reading this from your Huffington Post article. I finally decided to do a podcast. I went in with a heart ready to connect meaningfully with a voice I wasn't willing to let waver from its intended topic, black women, black women, black women, right? Mm -hmm. And this is led by two white women. About the the Pantsuit Nation podcast. Mm -hmm. But you said a lot of your black female friends was like, don't go on there. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question is why? Because we can't trust white women. We can't trust, we cannot trust white women. And they have, white women have proven themselves over and over again to place their needs above ours. So we have to be very wary about where we speak because we could be spoken over. Our words could be twisted into whatever white women need it to say. It's very hard to trust the motives 
of white women and wanting to interact with us, even those with the best intentions. So a space where we're told we will be heard and we will be centered has over and over again been twisted into a space for white women to feel better. Like, oh, we let a black woman come in or, oh, we let this conversation be had. They want to, there's the savior complex that comes with white women bringing black women into their spaces. So when I went to my black activist community and I said, hey, I got this amazing opportunity. They have millions of followers. I can't wait. I was talking specifically about Erica Garner and maternal mortality rates among black women. And they're like, why would you even put, why would you go into an unsafe space? And that was heartbreaking for me. Because it's like, but it's a platform. We need to talk. It is to the point sometimes where it's unsafe for us, whether it's mentally unsafe, emotionally unsafe, or, you know, there are so many examples of this that we constantly have to question our footsteps in order to do our best work while still trying to reach the people who need to hear from us. What about taking, but isn't that also controlling your your message, like in a way where I understand, I completely follow with what you're saying about being safe, but isn't that also where I'm not going to share my message because I'm afraid of what the, the reaction can be or well, being- it's not afraid of what the reaction will be. It's there's an, it, cause it's that I think has to do with ego. Like, oh, I'm scared of how people will make me feel or I'm scared. You know, I think that has to do with ego, but ours is a lot it's about, oh, let me think how to, how to say it best. I think I understand what you're describing. And I honestly- like controlling the narrative, right? It's- Well, there's nothing to control. There's history books. There's data. We're no, not hiding anything. Not, We're not, there's no. nothing to control. I'm not invalidating the history of the data, but I guess when you're- It's just, it's, it's controlling. Yeah, it is. It's controlling my energy. I'm not going to walk yeah, into a space. Got it. Okay. Yeah, it's controlling my energy. And, and when I'm in a space where I feel like I'm being tokenized or when I feel like I'm being condescended or I feel like you're sucking something from me in order to boost your own, whatever it is, whether it's your ego, your numbers, your, okay. your sense of self as a savior to this, you know, these people, it's purely protecting our energy and using it for what best it best needs to be used for. Okay, and I think that's so hard for white women to step back and say, I'm going to give this black woman a centered space to say what she needs to say. And I'm going to digest it how I need to digest it because white women have always been centered and they, and they've always been able to disagree with something. They've always been able, if I, as a black woman walk into a space and I say, I disagree. And this is why I'm an angry black woman. I'm not allowed to, you know, like we have very limited space to have a voice. And so when we get it, we have to protect our energy in it. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So I'm curious, you don't have to answer this question, but um, I'm curious when I asked you to come on our podcast, was there a similar feeling? Well, I don't know if you know this. I've been following you for a very long time. (laughs) I recently went on, when you asked me to come on, I went onto my Facebook to see when I started talking about you because I would make statuses about you. 2014. So I have statuses wow. from 2014 talking about me reading your book. So this was a very special interaction to me because I've trusted you for so long and I've read your work for so long. And although I've been controlling my fangirl-ish stick, <laughs> <laughs> it's been such an interest. But I, I, this also speaks so much to what's happening. You know, like for my voice as a Black woman, not even talking about me as an individual, but as a Black woman, 
to be in intimate conversation with a white woman who had a platform that I, you know, aspire to or that I look to, that I listen to. I think that just speaks to the necessary and the the necessary connections that people are making that social media allows, but also the example that's being set, the ability to listen to black women, the ability to center black women, to highlight their voices is incredible to see, you know, women who are just small town as me getting acknowledgement from women who have much bigger platforms. That means so much to me personally, our example, you know, is a personal example, but there's so many black women writers who, and we've been doing this work for ages. This is not new. I mean, whatever was before Instagram, there were, there were newsletters going out. There were pamphlets being passed out. Like this isn't this. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine me like writing pamphlets and like passing it out in the city I'm so glad you're on my Instagram that. post? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I think you should. What's so cool is that an experiment. Yeah, it would be. But I love. I'm going to come back. I'm putting a pin in. I want to talk about online versus offline. And so yeah. we're circling back in okay. a minute because I, I want to let you finish your thought. Oh, okay. But just that to answer your question, I trusted you only because I quote unquote knew you and your work and your heart from what you've written. And I trusted you. So that's, that's why I agreed to come on this specific podcast with no question. Awesome. Well, I'm honored. I'm honored to have you. Thank you. And I'm curious. Okay. So many things, which one do I want to ask first? Okay. Let's just, let's make sure we talk about the event first because I want to make sure to talk about that. I know it's sold out. So, Mm -hmm. um, but you do these things like that's the piece that's so awesome is that you're doing so many of us just live behind our screens raising my hand. Absolutely. You know, we live in this small town in Maine and I, I will be perfectly honest when people ask me to speak in Maine, I just say no. <laughs> I'm out of town. Like one of my friend's parents from high school is in the audience and I feel weird and I don't, I'll get over it someday. I'm not there yet. So anyway, I like to live a dual existence where in Yarmouth, Maine, I'm Kate Watts. And then online, I'm Kate Northrop and I'm two different people. So talk about compartmentalization. (laughs) (laughs) But I really love that you do have this thriving online platform, but then you also bring the conversations to people in person, like in real life, because we will say things to people online that we will not say in real life. And who cares what you're doing on Instagram when you can't have a conversation with your neighbor. So talk about how you run your, would you call yourself an entrepreneur? Entrepreneur is my heart and that's how I found you. That's, that's what I, who I've been for a long time. And it's, it's showing, I think in my activism. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, it's very entrepreneurial. So, so I'm just going to call what you do a business. Is that okay? No. What should we call it? What should we call it? Let's think about it. Like your projects, your activism? Yeah, I think it's my work. I think it's just my work. In your work, that's great. (laughs) In your work, how do you interweave the online piece with the offline piece and invite people in? Well, I live in New York City, which makes it everyone's here. (laughs) All the people are here and all the people come to things all the time. So that's not particularly hard. But I think that I like those intimate conversations. And the cool, I think especially in New York City, when you see someone with, you know, so many followers, you think, oh, if I go to their event, it's going to be a huge event. But I usually get like 
12 people in some of my in-person events, I'll do a writing workshop or I'll do like, I've done like a documentary dinner party where we'll watch a documentary film and have an expert come in and speak and then I'll cater something. So I love the intimate conversations and the friendships I've gotten to make with people who are just as passionate about me in things. And so the in-person allows us to hug each other and also to really take time to see what other people in the fight with us look like and how they talk and where they come from. And you're able to deep dive with other, because online my, my followers are mostly interacting with just me. And so I want them to interact with each other. Like this isn't just me doing the work. We're all doing the work. So I want you to come and meet each other and make friendships and be able to recognize that like stuff is happening. There's momentum and these are people you can call and these are other people you can connect with besides just interacting with me one-on-one through my personal page. Beautiful. So important. And talk to me about your decision to make, because I was so shocked when I went to your page to sign up for the event and it was $15. So can you talk about that? Well, I had only planned on having a like conference room of 12 people at this (laughs) (laughs) So when I planned it, I reached out to a place that usually lets me rent their space. And I'm like, can I get the conference room on June 2nd? And they're like, yeah, whatever. So I literally, and it has 12 seats in it. And I thought that was what it was going to be. And it is not bad. So we're now at 60 people in-house and 400 people live streaming. And I didn't, honestly, it just wasn't on my mind, you know, when, when it switched over to this bigger thing that was happening, I didn't think like, oh, I have more people, I should up it. It's just like, I don't know, it it didn't cross my mind, but I think that this is going to open more opportunities for me to teach on bigger platforms and do more of these things. So I'm really, I, I'm honestly in the depths of my soul, not worried about whatever I could have quote unquote lost out on. Cause I really think that so many people were able to do it because of the price point. And I offered scholarships as well. If anyone reached out to me and said, Hey, I can't afford it. I gave them a 100% code. And so we also have a lot of people who are just there for free and who needed the help to do this. And, you know, i totally believe in paying it forward. And I'm, I'm looking forward to how the knowledge that I'm able to give this person will be used in other ways. It'll all come around in the future when I'm on stage with Oprah or something. I don't know. Absolutely. No question. <laughs> no question. Okay. So now I want to talk about, if you don't mind, because I wasn't planning on talking about this, but you brought it up. So reading some of your work and some of the other work I've been reading, and then we also had a conversation with Desiree Attaway um, the other mm-hmm. day, just especially around the roots of capitalism and how mm-hmm. they are planted in in slavery and in just, you know, taking advantage of people and marginalization. Mm-hmm. And so it's such an important conversation to have. And now, you know, if I were to go back and read, reread my book, which I wrote in 2012, I would really write it differently. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, and you can be a hundred percent honest with me and you may not remember and that's totally fine. Is there anything like, like, actually, let's not talk about that. Who cares about my book? Let's just talk about (laughs) like the piece around capitalism. And if you do consider yourself an entrepreneur, I consider myself an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. We're entrepreneurs. How do you navigate? Like, yeah, we're operating in capitalism and it's planted in like really rotten soil. Especially as a black woman, it's hard. Because there's so much that goes into our, our access to opportunities, that goes into the people who are willing to work with us. One thing that drives me 
bonkers about, especially the entrepreneurial industry, and I'm positive you're familiar with it, is, you know, when it's like six-figure course and blah, blah, blah about how you can make money, and it's rooted in privilege. I've gone to workshops where they say, okay, come to us when you get your seed funding from family and friends of 10,000 or more. It's like, actually, I'm sending my mom money every month, so that's not really going to be a thing. I do not have family and friends who are going to invest in what I'm doing. So I think that when looking at entrepreneurship, I can't really speak to capitalism as a whole, but I will speak to entrepreneurship in the sense that I think that it is fair and it is necessary and it is vital for us to start bringing intersectionality into the, oh, I don't want to say fad because it's not a fad, but there's a very trendy thing going on with freedom, yes, entrepreneurship in that sense of being like a digital nomad and things like that. And I think that it's 100% necessary to recognize is your program looking to benefit women because you're really you really seem to get a kick out of saying that you're here to lift all women around the world but you're really only offering it to women who can afford your $500 retreat ticket and have the time to put their kid with a nanny and fly out for a week and you know there's all of these very specific things that privileged white women don't consider and they're completely marginalizing an entire set of black and indigenous brown women who in no way can participate in that. And so in my own entrepreneurship, I'm not privileged uh, in my own like economic space. I come from, I was in poverty my entire childhood and to consider where I am now, I'm so proud of what I've been able to do. And I'm so proud of how I've been able to pass on the goodness that has been given to me. Nothing makes me happier than to be able to pay the girls who are helping me with my June 2nd event. Like I can't express to you how much I'm doing the event just to pay them. (laughs) They've helped us on so they've helped us on so many events. And so I, it just makes me so proud and so happy to know that the work that I'm putting in, even though it's rooted in this really shitty place, that I'm able to do the best that I can with what I have. And, you know, I'm committed to paying it forward and, you know, spreading the goodness. But I think it's, it's a worthy conversation to look into the entrepreneurship community and say, what are we doing to exclude people who don't look like us and don't come from where we come from? Because it's exhaust as a woman who was in that space, who was willing to pay for the courses with my last dollar, just because I was told that I would be making such and such by a certain time, or especially the post that I recently posted that had everyone in a tizzy that said, maybe you manifested it, or maybe it's your white privilege. You should really oh, consider. What it was like. <laughs> it, it's just like, are you really like, did you really get to six figures because of your hard work or because your dad put a million dollar seed money into what you're doing? So anyways, it's definitely a worthy conversation to look at where just marginalization fits into this world, because if we're all really going to rise and you want if just don't preach all women if you're not really helping all women. And I know it makes you, I know it makes people feel good to say that they're a women-based organization, but you're not, you're a privilege-based organization. And until you're ready to do the work, don't say that you are. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I love, I love what Glennon Doyle posted a little while ago about taking like the blue pill and, or maybe it was the red pill. To be honest, I've never seen one of the pills. So I actually don't know. (laughs) What color is it? 
Carrie Ann, we will eventually. I know. I'm sorry, Carrie Ann. I have to be totally honest. I've never seen it. One day I'm going to educate. Which one is it? Blue or red? No, there's both. There's a blue okay. and a red pill. One, I don't remember which one. One, yeah, one does something that okay. I, I don't remember. As my friend used to say, irregardless. Right, exactly. <laughs> but she wrote about the basically like, once you take the pill and the the veil is lifted and you suddenly realize it's a good idea to stay quiet for a while mm-hmm. and actually read and listen. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you said, I just really want to highlight that if you are not actually going to be about all women, just don't say anything at all mm-hmm. until you're doing the work and be quiet for a while and, and do the work. I'm just saying like what I'm doing myself, P.S. No, I'm not giving other people advice, <laughs> but I always, anything I always, I write or say is pretty much just advice to myself. Same. Um, I'm so glad you said that. Same. Yeah, always. <laughs> Oh wait, so so I I are really you, do appreciate are you saying that. I shouldn't walk around and give black women advice. I feel um, like not. No. <laughs> I feel like not. Yes, I'm you even aware. less than me, but neither. <laughs> I'm I'm well aware. Neither of us at all. You okay. saying that the work that's what it is. It's the work, and I think that so many women are grappling with understanding themselves as people who. They're nice, they're kind, they're respectful, but in the depths of it, they're not anti-racist. They let their family say things in front of them. They let things happen in public in front of them. They make, they are very, well, even if they're not aware, they're, they're somewhat aware that their privilege is marginalizing other people. And they think that it, that's enough, but it's not. You have to do the work in order to really go towards the colorblindness that people like to claim they have, the humanity that people like to cover race issues with. Like, oh, let's just all be one race of humanity. Until you do the work, I love that. And I've been doing the work to do that. It'd be great if you hopped on board and we, I'm, I'm here for that, but it's not the reality and you can stop erasing me so you can feel more comfortable. So I, I'm starting a campaign called Do the Work and it is really going to be an opportunity for white women to get a very clear-cut way that they can do the work. And it's my goal for no excuses. I don't want, I, I recently had a woman write me and say that she didn't really have the headspace to talk about race right now. <laughs> I saw that on your stories. I read the whole thing. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really going to highlight this conversation for the rest of my days because it was just a perfect example of privilege dismissing she used her spirituality. She told me I should read yoga. I should go to a yoga class and maybe I'd feel better about the world. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to using my knowledge and understanding to offer no excuse ways for action to happen. Yeah. Right, because totally correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is you can't, like, people of color cannot dismantle white supremacy. White people have to do that. And yeah. yes, yes. And, and not only is that the case, but you can't pretend it's not happening and hope it goes away. So, That's so true. Well said. <laughs> so 
you can't both say, wow, I really hope racism stops. I'm just going to be nice to all the black people. That's not how it works. It's you actually have to go and break something down. We can't nice racism away. Tweet that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We'll make, we'll make that one of our shareables for sure. Well, because, I mean, that's the same thing as the spiritual bypass is to ignore the thing that's happening. And that's one of the problems in the spiritual community is like, Mm -hmm. okay, there's this, this like pussy wound bleeding over here. And it's like, oh, well, I'll just do affirmations and Mm -hmm. pretend it's not happening. Mm -hmm. You're bleeding. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so it doesn't work. So that's a great. And I suggest, and I would also encourage white people to consider that Black people can't meditate our way out of systematic oppression that you have us living in. So we can do something to keep ourselves healthy, to keep ourselves healing, to keep ourselves intact. But at the end of the day, I can't stay on my yoga mat until I can finally walk outside and know that I won't be disproportionately killed by the police. Like it's not, it's not going to happen. And black people aren't manifesting that. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. I, as much as I'd love to manifest the same seed money you did from your family, the fact is that generations and generations ago, my, you know, we were disenfranchised and didn't have the chance to make the type of wealth that exists in the white community. It just doesn't exist for us to use regardless. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all those things. Yeah. I want to know, when did your platform really start getting traction And what were some of the things that led to that happening? Probably about three weeks ago. When you started started following me, literally, around that time, literally, I'm not kidding. Well, (laughs) because you just seem like you've been doing this for years. Well, I have been. I mean, and and just like, but, but I will say there's something about, okay, I apologize because that sounded dismissive. What I mean to say is there's something about the way that you hold the space that is the power of somebody who's been having a platform like that for years. And so I guess that's just who you are. Well, I think I've been learning a lot, both the traditional education that I'm getting at Columbia, as well as learning from other black women activists on Instagram, doing my own work from, I'm on the Young Professionals Board for the Miss Foundation. I do a lot of, you know, work in person at events with my friend Dana. And I think that I'm, I found my voice. I've been able to find, you know how it is as a writer, you're, you're kind of, you're saying what you want to say, but at one point it all comes together, both what you want to say and how you want to say it. And that has come together very recently for me. And I think that one thing, I think I've always had a voice, but I've built a community on my platform lately. And that has come from one thing that I do with Specifically, if someone asks me a question in my comments that I just don't have the energy to, if they ask me a question that's been asked a billion times before that I don't have the energy to answer, I'll put it in my stories and say, hey, if any of my followers want to go answer this woman's question, feel free to. And it both allows them to work their knowledge that they're learning and also to build a community like, hey, I'm a fellow white woman. I understand how hard this is. And I'm going to explain this to you so Rachel doesn't have to. And this is why Rachel shouldn't have to. And so it's like, I've, I've been able to build this community of learners that are willing not to just learn, but to teach each other. And they're using the text that I've created, the posts that I do to do that with each other. So I think that in the last few weeks, people have found that community and they've been able to take pride in participating in it and see the need for it. So I rarely, these days, do I have to really go in and moderate my comments because they moderate each other, which is really 
incredible and needed and necessary because not only are people, you know, learning, but they're sharing knowledge and that leads to, you know, more and more conversation. Yeah. And you really understand something by teaching it to somebody mm-hmm. else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think my, my white followers are grateful for the opportunity to continue to practice being anti-racist, honestly, because it's not something that they've had to do. <laughs> like I never had to really answer questions about race. I haven't had to read books in order to say, this is what actually happened in history. So it's, I, I love creating this learning environment I would have, like I said, I would have never considered myself a writer. I would have never considered myself a teacher, but I'm really enjoying this opportunity to learn along with my followers. The amount of research that I've done is more than I do in class (laughs) at Columbia because I want to share as much factual knowledge so that, so I'm learning right along with everyone else. And it's been a really incredible experience to be in a community with so many passionate people who are open to having meaningful, constructive conversation. I think it is so genius of you to have your followers respond to other people's comments. Like that's just genius. You are very good at the do less philosophy. (laughs) Like you're nailing it. Because you need to, as you've shared, preserve your energy. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and obviously for different types of people, different populations, the do less philosophy applies in different ways, right? This is not about like having more time to get a pedicure unless right. it is, which is also <laughs> awesome. But I can see how that really can be impactful when you're exhausted all the time and anxious and, and scared. <laughs> Yeah. And for those who are interested in that type of community where you're not having to go to a person of color and say, teach me how to be less racist. One of my followers started a group on Facebook called The Start. And there's now a community of, man, I should look up. I really, I really want to see what the number is right now. Um, The Start? The Start. Yeah. It's called The Start. Give me one moment because I truly want to see what the numbers are. We'll put it in the show notes for sure. Yeah, it's called The Start, a forum for radical social change. It was started by one of my followers, and she and I are in conversation almost every day, but it's up to 823 members, and it's pretty much all white women going in and asking each other questions. You know, this happened to me at work. How should I approach it? My dad said this at the last family dinner. How should I have, you know, what conversations can I start with him? just so many questions from women and they're all answering each other's questions. And I come in and I offer insight when I can. And I, they're all, they're going through my, my document called how to be an ally to black women. And they're going through every module that I put together in order to learn together. And it's a really wild, it, this, we started this two weeks ago and it's been growing so fast and the conversations are so incredible And there's an option to ask anonymous questions if for whatever reason you don't feel comfortable, even though that's not an excuse. But if you don't feel comfortable to ask a question, some of the moderators will ask it for you so that you can still, our goal there in that group is to get you answers and to get you action oriented in the work that you're doing around race. That's great. And one of the things that I've been practicing lately, I hate to even use the word practicing, but I think it's an appropriate word, is bringing up when I'm hanging out with girlfriends, we live in a very white area and the people I hang out with in general are white and in person, not so much in my Mm -hmm. online community, but just like practicing bringing up white privilege and seeing Mm -hmm. what the conversation is about. And I didn't tell you this, Mike, but one of the ladies I was at with the other night, 
is actually in charge of diversity programming at an entire college. And I was like, well, we should be really having this conversation. And usually we talk about like potty training and sleep schedules. And I was like, well, hey, look at that. We could actually talk about something real for a second. Not that potty training isn't real. It's very real. (laughs) (laughs) But like, let's say in terms of the level of importance for you. Yeah, I think those conversations are necessary and I can see how they're hard. Like I'm not going to deny that having the conversation is hard, but it's necessary. And I think that educating yourself, I have a bookshelf on my Instagram profile and the highlights. So there's books that like white women need to take count. Have I read any books by women of color? Have I watched any movies that center experiences of women of color? Who are my friend groups? When I scroll through my Instagram, am I seeing am I seeing all women who look and think and live like me? You know, like who, what have I surrounded myself with? And if you've surrounded yourself with privilege, there's a lot of things you should consider how you're voting, how you're traveling, you know, like I planned a trip recently and I had to, I was terrified to go and type a letter on Airbnb and Martha's Vineyard. Cause I was very concerned of whether they would even let me stay with them because they'd see I was black. And that's something that white people just don't have to think about. But even though I am a highly educated, well-spoken, functioning, you know, human being, I, I had to take a second thought into what I was doing. And when you're surrounding yourselves as a white person in an all white privileged space, you just are living in a cloud that doesn't allow you to really interact with the world. And if you're not interacting and you're not aware, you can't help benefit it. And one way I like to really, one of the biggest ways you can do this, and I'd like to throw it out there, is that when you're voting, look at who your judges are and look at your judge's track record. And if they're constantly putting Black people in jail for longer periods of time for the same type of crime that they're doing for white people, it's, you have a racist judge, you have a racist representative. And I think that some of the best ways we can start doing that is putting intentionally not racist people into office, ask, go to the town hall and ask these questions, you know, like when's the last, you know, who are your cohorts? When's the last time you did blah, blah, blah. And I think that that's a really easy way to be intentionally anti-racist as well as an article that I recently posted on my Instagram called is your child school racist? And it allows you, it gives a link to the national data about discipline that happens in schools. And you can see many schools, they might have 13% of black students who are punished 60% of the time. So it doesn't seem like there's ways they're like, well, what can I do? I don't know what to like, I don't know what else you want me to do besides be nice to the grocer who packed my bag. Like there's, like there's very intentional things you can do to be anti-racist. And I hold my community to a very high standard of taking action and having conversation and gaining knowledge. As you should. And the way that you write about it is very, I don't know. There's just a way that you do it. That's really confrontational, but really inviting. I don't know how Many that people you, say that, and I don't magical. know. I'm not doing it on purpose. Yeah, you, but no, it's, it's, it's your special sauce. It's a mix <laughs> of like your story, but also with facts. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's just good. Thank yeah. you. It's it's yeah. just good. It's that just means good. so and much. And that is like you. you know living in a in a predominantly white community, raising kiddos 
we don't leave our neighborhood that often. And, and I'm, I'm cool with that because this is a moment in time. We and like, our house we <laughs> have kids in diapers, but there are, and I like, I honor this season of our life. However, there are a lot of things that I've been actively doing inspired by you, inspired by other people I've been following. And just, you know, one of the main things is that like, I'm filling up my Instagram feed with different people. Than I ever followed before yeah. and unfollowing others. And that has been incredibly educational. Mm-hmm. And I love it because I feel like I'm, I'm just like engaging with a world that I don't engage in when I walk out my front door. Yeah. And I've been engaging in the world I walk, I walk out in my front door. I was raised in this town. So like mm. it's pretty much it is what it is. And so, yeah, time to get out at least on the internet. Yeah. Especially when you know that you're affecting, regardless of whether you not you specifically, but whether anyone, any white person wants to or knows that they are, their privilege is affecting the world. Yes. And so whether you are actively doing it or inactively doing it, whether you know it or you don't know it, there's nothing that, it's not bad, you're not in trouble for it, but you are responsible for like changing it. And, you know, in the same way that a person says to me, you know, well, I can't help what my ancestors, who my ancestors were. And I'll say, I can't help who my ancestors were either, but here we are. Like, There's nothing, you know, and so we have to take responsibility for things that were done because if we don't, this will go on forever and no one will take responsibility for it. And so, you know, when you, when you're intentional, being intentional about what you're seeing, what you're doing and how you're doing it, you know, as soon as you know the knowledge, you're responsible for it. And I'm here to put the knowledge out in front of, everyone always makes fun of me about my hashtags because I'll do a really intense post about race and I'll hashtag like Lululemon and yoga moms and like (laughs) something very specific that I know the white women community will be looking at. And my goal is to put this knowledge in front of as many white women at this point in my career to put this specific knowledge in front of as many white women as possible, because as soon as you know, there's no excuse. And as soon as you know, you can't unknow. You can't unknow. So I'm here to let you know. Yeah. And then it's like, (laughs) then what? And you are sharing beautiful resources around the then what? Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I really enjoyed your, uh, so what are they called? What do you call Social them? syllabi. Yeah, that was, I love the, you click on the articles and it takes you, yeah. Well, there's just such a lack of depth on the internet mm-hmm. because you can publish anything. I mean, the joy of the internet is you can put anything up there that you want and yeah. the, the trouble with it is you can put anything you want up there. Yeah. And so your academic rigor is so refreshing because it's so rare. Like, Thank you. You know, just for anybody, I'm not talking about, you know, our, the specific topic of racism, just like in general, people don't reference stuff. Right. <laughs> don't reference who the, who posted the beautiful meme that they're reposting. They're not referencing quotes. They're not, ref- they're taking a shot from a book and not referencing the author. Like it just, when we talk about lineage, right? You can't help who your ancestors were. I can't help who my ancestors were. But I think a lot about maternal lineage and like, yeah, I can't help what my grandmother did and I can't really help what my mother did, but I can help who I am with my daughters. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a similar, you know, right church, wrong pew, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's a similar, at least it might help people to understand who are listening, who don't maybe understand what you're talking about. Like we all deal with this in our own way. And so 
to see what Rachel's talking about, it might help to think about like just the ways you're dealing with your own maternal lineage and the stuff that got passed down to you that perhaps you might have preferred didn't get passed down to you, but you've got it. Yeah. So then what? Yeah. And what are you going to give your kids mm -hmm. and their kids? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So how can people connect more with you? How can they find, I know your event is sold out, the unpacking white feminism. Mm -hmm. By the way, it was really helpful for me to learn today that just because you are a white woman who's a feminist does not mean you're practicing white feminism. That was a really mm -hmm. interesting, I was like, whoa. Okay. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, please go get Rachel's Dear White Women piece because you'll learn about this. But how can they find the event to get the recording and follow your work? Yeah, mostly Instagram is my platform and that's where you will find everything that I do. I'm sure Kate will put my Instagram name. It's one that got, I should probably change it to my name at some point, but it's one that got away. But with two Y's. With two Y's and the number one. Where did um, that come from? <laughs> this is a really funny story. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I was nine, no, yeah, I was married when I was younger from 19 to 23. And when I got divorced, I was like, it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't like a tumultuous situation. We just were like, this isn't working. Let's go. But I felt this like rush of single womanness. And I was like, I'm going to change my Instagram name to one that got away. And then I remember my ex-husband called me. He's like, why would you change it to that? You're making it seem like this was like a thing. And I was like, no, no, it's not about you. It's not about you. <laughs> it was definitely about the marriage. But <laughs> the first I, when I first read it, I was like, this is totally about a guy like, or, or a, you know, your partner. I was just like, it was so funny. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I was like, no, it's not like, no, it's not about about you don't worry about it it was totally about my marriage and then I never changed by the way I should restate that nothing was wrong with like it we just separated he didn't there was no reason for me to be the one that got away I have no clue why I even did that but <laughs> it has come in I, I made a blog post about this recently that it has become like I used it. I love the idea of it with my, with moving out of Ohio. I moved straight from Ohio to like the big city for me doing my traveling when I left like the corporate world to like work on my own things. It's been such an interesting part of who I am, like getting like quote unquote, getting away from the norms and the expectations of myself. So I kept it. And here we, yeah, I'm still with it. So it's, it's been very interesting. Every time I have a new milestone in life, I'm like, this could still apply to my Instagram name. I'm going to keep it. <laughs> it does have like a mystique around it. It's, and I was not like a mysterious person. <laughs> I was just like a girl from Ohio. <laughs> 23-year-old <laughs> who was like, I'm going to move to the big city and I'm going to date a bunch of people <laughs> and all of these big plans, which I ended up doing, but it was it, when that's how the name came up. I like it. Yeah. So anyways, you can find me on Instagram there. <laughs> and in my Instagram bio is my link tree. If you don't know what link tree is, it's just a space where you can put a bunch of links instead of just one in your bio. So there you can find literally every resource, my Patreon, my website, all of my social syllabi. I'm often referring my followers to look at different articles that I think they should read. So a lot of links to articles are in there. And on my website, rachelcargill.com, my social syllabi are there as well. I try to link, put as many things together as possible so people don't have to search too much. But yeah, right now Instagram is my platform and I am enjoying using it to have these conversations. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you for having this conversation with us. I've learned a lot. I appreciate you and what you're doing. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. And, and someday we will talk about dating in New York because that 
It's could a be thing. a whole episode <laughs> in and of itself. It's a thing. Yeah, I agree. Full yeah. hour and a half. For oh, absolutely. <laughs> I want to hear that. Yeah. Is there yeah. anything else that you would like to share before we wrap up? Not in particular. I'm so grateful to be in this conversation with you. I really am proud of you for using your privilege in in your space to have these conversations. I hope more women with your type of reach, more white women with your type of reach will do this. I think that even the people with the smaller reach within their homes and within their communities, even though we use the word platform to talk about influencers, we all have a platform. And I just hope that you continue to use yours and everyone continues to use theirs to further these types of conversations because they're needed. And I truly, truly believe in the goodness of what could happen from this. Love that. Thank you. You're the best. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We'll come meet you in New York for. Oh my gosh. Come to New York, please. We will. My whole little entrepreneurial life will come full circle having coffee with you. I I, I have to tell you the specific memory. I I was baby. I, for whatever reason, I have a very specific memory of babysitting in DC and sitting on the couch and reading your book and tweeting about it like all night. Like I, I, I'm hoping the baby was asleep while this was all (laughs) happening, but I was just so. I just admired you so much. And it is, this is such a cool experience to be talking about. That to is you. cool. That is Isn't really so, cool. Yeah. It was. I, yeah. I mean, I will stop recording in a minute, but it is one <laughs> of those like weird things of, and sorry, Mike just had to go because there's a meltdown in the other room. Um, <laughs> like I just, you know, when you just said, I'm just, you know, small town girl from Ohio, I, I feel not from Ohio, but I feel very much the same in Maine. And so it just always shocks me when anybody has been influenced by anything. So it's totally an honor. And thank you, Rachel. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) I got to take care of you. Okay. It was nice seeing you. (laughs) Thank you for your time. You're the best. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you're looking for a way to turn your spending into a prayer and take immediate action, head over to thelovelandfoundation.org, which is Rachel's foundation committed to showing up for communities of color in unique and powerful ways with a particular focus on black women and girls. We personally are monthly contributors to the therapy fund. So please join us in that, thelovelandfoundation.org.